Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamberlain. Welcome our listeners, um, and we also welcome um, Reverend Dario Harris. Dario, it is a joy to have, have you on the pod today. Thank you so much for making some time for us. Yeah, thanks for uh, inviting me and having me. I, I appreciate it. So what our listeners need to know is how you've shot to the top of our guest list, because when we, when we emailed you about coming on the pod, you were the first one who has ever said, I was hoping you would ask me. So um, please know that you are near and dear to our hearts in that respect. <laughs> So a little intro on um, you may uh, hopefully our listeners have heard you before um, you were at our um, at our headwaters conference in 2018 the predecessor to the food and faith gathering um, and we had you on a roundtable and also you did a presentation but we've never had the opportunity to just interview you and so it really is a treat for us. So one of the reasons particularly um, we've been glad for your voice on the pod in various ways in the past. Um, but as Sam mentioned, we haven't had the opportunity to have this one-on-one -on -one conversation. And one of the things that I love most about talking one-on-one -on -one with our guests is asking this question about your geography. Um, what is the land, the food, the culture, the people, the stories, the songs that have shaped you to be who you are and, um, We'd love to hear a bit about about that for you. It's a bit varied for me. So I, I grew up <clears throat> in a town called Severn, Maryland. Severn, Maryland is a small town, um, a couple stones throws from the BWI airport. It's about um, eight, nine miles from downtown Baltimore. And so if you were to ask me when I was uh, growing up where I was from, I would have said, I'm from Baltimore. Um, it wasn't until I moved to Baltimore that I realized that I wasn't from Baltimore at all. I was from Severn. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge difference mm -hmm. between um, my life in, in Severn and the, the typical life of a, a Baltimore resident. Um, but, you know, growing up in that spot, like the we were peripheral to Baltimore. So the music of Baltimore City is what we listened to. Um, the style of Baltimore City is what I'm most uh, actively clung to. Um, we ate crabs like everyone in Baltimore does. Um, when it was a, a break from school, if we had a day off school, my mom took me to the Inner Harbor and we walked around and you know, did all these kind of sightseeing things. Um, when we did uh, roller skating trips from my church, we went to Baltimore City roller skating rink. We shopped in Baltimore, I, you know, I, it, like Baltimore was kind of my place where I did a lot of things, um, but it just wasn't a place where I lived. And so, um, so when I came to college, I actually lived in the city and that, that, that informed me greatly. And then I graduated and I moved to DC and that was another city. And so that, that kind of shaped me. Um, I spent uh, uh, three years in North Carolina, um, kind of in a, well it was in Durham so I'm, I'm still still in a, kind of in a bit of a university bubble I was a Duke student so I was in a university bubble but I, I did I did um, I did um, serve at a local church and I had um, friends that were local to the area and so I got to know the people there and experienced a little bit of what it what it meant and looked like to live in the Durham area but I would say one of the things that was super pivotal to my kind of understanding and where I am now was my time in Africa. And so I spent uh, two summers in Africa 
in uh, the summer of 2009, 2010. And then in 2011, I was, uh, I, I moved to Africa and I lived there uh, for a year and a half. What part? So um, my first summer I spent in U in Kenya, the second summer I spent in Uganda. And then when I moved to Africa, I moved to South Sudan. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all East Africa. South Sudan at the time, well, it still is, is the, the newest country uh, on earth. Um, they got independence, um, I think it was July 1st, uh, uh, 2011. I arrived September 1st, 2011. Wow. Um, and, so, and so I was there for you. And that, and that was, I mean, that, that was such a, you know, it, going to Uganda and Kenya is like, it was like going to my grandma's. So my grandmother is from a rural, my mom and my grandmother, they, they, from a rural area in Virginia. Hmm. And so, um, you know, a lot of farms, a lot of space between houses. Mm -hmm. And so when I was going to the villages in Uganda and Kenya, it was a lot like going to uh, my grandma's house. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, it was foreign, but it wasn't completely foreign. When I moved to South Sudan, that was a different world. Uh-huh. Uh, there That's was so. a... I mean, there is a there was an Arab influence in South Sudan that you don't that you don't see in Uganda and Kenya. Um, the people spoke Arabic. Mm -hmm. Arabic is the is the mark. They have like a a a, a version they call Juba Arabic. So it's a, it's a bit of a I guess we would call it like a broken or pigeon Arabic or something. And so, but um, but that's what the, that was the market language. So when you went to the market language, when you went to the market, you wanted to buy something, you had to know how to speak a little bit of this uh, this version of Arabic in order to make a purchase. Mm -hmm. uh, they had been through about 50 years of war. I mean, they had just, they had just finished fighting, right? And so um, you could tell, you could tell, you could tell by the, the anxiety uh, on some of the people, some of the leaders, you know, some, you know, they were much, they were much less forgiving. So in, in Uganda and Kenya, everyone's ha everyone has a smile and they're, they're just like <laughs> enjoying life and it's yeah. like happy-go-lucky. And you, you you went to South Sudan and people were tense and the mm -hmm. people were on edge. Mm -hmm. And if you broke, if you broke a, broke a, a custom that you did, you may not have known, mm -hmm. you may not, you know, you know, people, there was a, there, there was once, um, there was like a, a, a staging ground where you had to, they had a, they had a statue of John Garang, who was the the leader during the um, during the South. This, so the South broke off from the North, and so when the South broke off from the North, the the leader who kind of galvanized, you know, most of the people in the South was a leader named John Garang, and um, he would have been the president of South Sudan, but he he died in a uh, in a plane crash just just after um, they signed a peace agreement. Yeah. For, and and set the road to independence. And so there's a statue of him there, and then there's a flag, and the flag gets lowered and raised every day. And um, it's every day at four o'clock on the dot. And so there was once where there was a person. Um, it must have been three fifty nine, and the person was driving through this kind of parade ground, and it it, it turned four o'clock, and then someone blew a whistle, but the person in the car didn't realize that they were supposed to stop right then and there. And then so the military personnel that were there took it as a threat and they shot the person, you know, they shot the person, the person dies. Um, but it was that type of like, it was such a believable story because every time you encountered authorities, they were really 
sharp and on yeah. edge and you you better comply or if you didn't comply then you knew that you it was very risky yeah it was very risky and so you experienced then the you know in that setting i mean what what trauma what you know in that setting a national trauma what that what that looked like and how that played out even when the cause of the trauma the war itself was over so i mean it, it yeah and this story just speaks to how how quickly things can escalate when we've been affected by trauma that's a that's a fascinating story exactly exactly and so my experience in south sudan um, um observing the trauma observing the aftermath of the trauma really helped me understand what's happening in baltimore yeah and so now i serve in baltimore i i, I um i serve and live on the west side of baltimore city um, the zip code is 21217. It's the, zip, it's the zip code with the highest recidivism rate in the state of Maryland, um, the highest arrest rate in the state of Maryland, lots of uh, crime and drugs and a lot of bad things. A lot of good things. That's a lot, lot of good things, too. I don't want to make it sound like it's all bad. There's, uh, you know, I live in a tree-lined street with parks and playgrounds and you know, beautiful historic houses, and it's, it's, it's nice. But if you cross the street a little bit and go down a block, then it turns into a, a, a different space. And so um, it's traumas all around. And you can see it on the faces of uh, the residents. You can see it in the decisions of the residents. And you can see it in the posture of the authority figures who mm -hmm. are supposed to control or keep the peace, if you will, uh, uh, in this area. So can you sketch for us a little more about how do you see that playing out and particularly um, you know, your work as a pastor, but also that your work with the urban farm. I know that, you know, some of the people who are wor working on the farm are residents returning from incarceration. So you're, you're working in the soil, but also in, in this, in the streets with these various groups of people who actively experiencing trauma and how has that changed the way that you see your community or how has your community changed by introducing or bringing out that that farming aspect um into, into yeah. your work so so to live in the sandtown upton area is to be acquainted with trauma and to live to uh you know to go to prison obviously is to definitely be acquainted with trauma there's no way you're getting out of prison without experiencing some trauma um and so when people come and work on the and work on the farm um the 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 thing that is needed more so than any other thing is is dignity mm -hmm. So however you, how, you know, whatever, whatever the task is, and, and the work on a farm is not easy, right? It's, it's hot. No. And um, oftentimes, uh, you know, you're working under, you're working under in, in hoop houses and under plastic and stuff. So it's even hotter. Um, it's, 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 it's hard. It's hard labor. Um, so, but, but, but in that hard labor, um, the people have to receive dignity. Because dignity is what kind of like, Dignity is like the anti-trauma, mm -hmm. um, and so it, it it helps it helps correct some of the damage that's been done, um, and so you're just you're you're trying uh, in as many ways as possible to just 
to infuse that, to always speak to people with respect, to look them in the eye, to um, hear what they say, to acknowledge, um, you know, the importance of, of their feelings and what, they, and what they have to say and their experiences and their histories and taking that into account as you work towards the goal of, of running a farm. Yeah, and so I would like to I would like to connect some of our listeners. Um, I with previous things you've done on the pod, we want to direct them back to that. But um, the times that I have heard you speak, um, I have I have come to experience you as a very skilled scriptural expositor. Um, just the way that you handle texts and make them relevant. Um, oh, thank you. It, it continues to challenge me as a pastor. Um, I'm just like, yo, I am not putting in I am not putting in the miles that I need to um, in order to keep up. But what I've heard, and I, I just wonder if, if I'm reading this correctly, what I've heard out of you is, because the, the two times I've heard you speak, you have taken texts I've never heard preached before. Mm -hmm. um, and stories that often are stories that are rooted in our traditions, they're in our Bibles, um, but we don't take them seriously because they make us uncomfortable or they feel obscure. Um, and you take them seriously and you pay attention to them. And, I, and I've always noticed you paying very close attention to the details. What does this text actually say? And as I hear you talk about your people, about Sandtown and Upton, I hear you doing the same thing in your community, taking very seriously what is happening here, taking not just sort of having this, this you know, sort of ethereal, you know, well, Jesus is going to bless the plate. No, but listening carefully to what's going on the ground. And and. What I have seen come out of you is because you're such a careful listener, you are able to take stories that otherwise we wouldn't take seriously and make them unbelievably relevant. Um, I, I will never forget your food and faith gathering um, or headwaters as it was then. Um, were you talking about, you know, this story about women boiling children and saying, hey, listen, we're all experiencing this kind of trauma. And so um, so I just wonder, like, you seem to have this listening spirit. And I kind of and I just wanted I've been meaning to ask you, like, where does that come from? Well, and I, I, I know, know Holy Spirit, yada yada yada. Like, like I know all the spiritual answers, but I just like what process? Like, what is your process that brings you to that place where you're looking at these stories in ways that that bring such life out of stories that otherwise we're almost embarrassed about? I, I'll the, the first thing that came to mind was something I heard from Ellen Davis. So Ellen Davis is one of the great um, biblical writers, uh, interpreters. She taught me old, uh, old Testament. She is, she is a patron saint of this podcast. There's no doubt yes. about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 One of our dreams is to have her as a guest. Just to oh, put wow. it out there in the world. <laughs> hey, well then you should, you should definitely do that. I have her yeah. email. <laughs> yeah, it, it just so happens that she's, she's, she's a very close mentor of mine. I mean, I, whenever she comes to Baltimore, she comes to Baltimore usually, you know, pre-pandemic, she was coming like once or twice a year. Oh. And um, oh. I was, um, you know, we would we would we would meet and we would meet at least to talk for about an hour. Or so she wrote my letters of recommendation uh, to my PhD program. Every time I go to Durham, I go eat at her house. <laughs> I love Ellen Davis. Ellen Davis That's is awesome. like, man, yeah. this is such a flex on this pod. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in in Old Testament class, right? Um, you're in you're in class and everyone everyone there is like after the first day or two everyone's just like enamored like eating off every word that she says right and so she's there and uh, I think the the question comes up as to why is it so important if we have all these translations right if you have the NRSV and you 
say that the NRSV is a great translation, you say that the ESV was a great translation, you say all these translations are great, then what's the point of taking, what's the point of learning Hebrew and reading it in the original text if you have all these great translations anyway, right? And so Ellen Davis um, conveyed that the reason why, one of the reasons why we read the text in Hebrew is to slow down. Mm. And um, you know, she talks about we, we have to you have to do careful reads of scripture. If you don't read the scripture carefully, if you don't read it slowly, then you miss it. Uh, you just you just come away with a gloss, and you miss the richness of it. Um, and so um, you know, when I was at Duke, then I I you know I took I took Hebrew, I took Greek, I took Hebrew poetry, and I was I was I was um, kind of doing this uh, oftentimes grammatically. And trying to take it slow and trying to trying to feed on it. Then I, when I met John Perkins, now John Perkins is quick to tell you that he has like a second grade education and you know he's not, you know he doesn't know Hebrew like that, right? Um, but he uses the same approach, whereas he like reads the text very very slowly, under, tries to understand the story and what's going on around it, and through that slow read and that like ruminating on the text he's able to pull out this richness that is oftentimes missed. And so I've just been trying to, I've just been trying to, uh, to read the text slowly. And I hear you. I, I, I wonder if that was a similar process. Cause I, as you moved and your, your, your sort of career and your life moved from Severn to Baltimore, that that transition kind of required a slowing down and listening, you know, getting beyond what you thought of Baltimore. Because I'm very much in a, in the same situation to what, where you grew up. I'm an hour from Baltimore, but it wouldn't make any sense for me to say that I'm from Baltimore, um, you know. And so I I wonder is that as, as you became a pastor, was that a similar process in terms of reading your community that you found yourself in? For sure, for sure. Now, I mean, and, and I'm not I'm not immune to all the bad things that. Um, people do when they integrate into different neighborhoods, right? So when I first came to Baltimore, when I moved to Baltimore as a as a youngster and college student, you know, I was I was fairly arrogant, right? So I was I thought I knew it, and um, and I wasn't I wasn't trying to do any slow reads and slow understandings of the city. I, mean, I was just like I, I know what I'm talking about. I heard of one story and I like I, I know it all. <laughs> Off one story, I know everything. Um, but so so now, I mean now, you know, fast forward twenty years, I'm you know I'm a different person, um, and so yeah, and so now you're, we're trying to, when you know I come in I come into the neighborhood, and then the first thing I'm trying to do is listen, because I know I, I know I don't know, and I, so I'm just trying to sitting there listening. I listen to as many stories as I can. I try not to interrupt. I listen to people that I don't really sometimes get along with, just so I can understand not just what they think, but how they how they arrived at what they think. So you're trying to get the information and the logic that feeds the information. And and once you do that, then you can then you can speak to it in more relevant ways. So continuing on that theme of listening, I'm fascinated that you are working as a pastor, you are engaged in farming and working with people in farming, and your PhD is in public health. Yes. And hearing you speak about this listening, this all makes sense. And yet kind of on paper, the CV, I think if we looked at the CV, it'd be like, what, what? <laughs> and yet that 
power of integrating and interconnecting those pieces. And I would love to hear about more about what are you studying? What are you hoping to do with your PhD work? And how is that continued listening? In the same way that I had Ellen Davis in theology, I think one of the people that impressed, made a huge impression upon me in, let's say, sociology is a lady named Catherine Eden. Catherine Eden, she wrote, she wrote a bunch of books, but one book that she wrote is uh, $2 a day. She's a, she's a rock star scholar, sociologist. And, um, and so she, she, she talks about, you know, listening slow and, uh, uh, and doing the same thing. And she's been able to uncover these stories that I've, have, have been told but not, have not been understood through what, what we call deep listening. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, uh, as an academic, I came in, I started the academic career saying that if, if we spoke to Christian audiences using Christian language, we can make a difference in um, those Christians' health behaviors. So if I speak to Christians through scripture about um, the way in which we eat and the way we think about food or the lack thereof, if I speak their language, then I think that um, they would hear it more. They would be, they were more readily uh, 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 absorb it, and then they would be influenced more, and then we would probably have Christians um, partaking in much more healthy behavior um, than they would if they otherwise um, learn it from science. Um, which is still that's my dissertation, but that was is that that focus is, is still a focus of mine, but it's. It's more of an individualistic kind of approach. And as I got into it, I realized that some of the reasons that are um, that people are making the choices that they're making is not just because of an individual preference or, or bent towards one way or another. It's more of a systematic societal thing. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I started in one direction, but as I've been there, I've been learning and so I've been kind of like shifting to, okay, what are the societal systems and design choices, policy choices that are being made that are, that are making it most likely that a person chooses one, one, thing, or, or, um, one thing over another? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that answers your question. Yeah, no, I think that that, that connects. And I'm just fascinated by the different angles into the same issues and questions. And I, I love that the multidisciplinary act of actually listening is something that crosses, <laughs> cross, it's cross-disciplinary. And- Yeah, who and, knew, who knew? Right, yeah, go figure. <laughs> like, especially talking back to our like 20 year old, you know, early 20 selves, right? <laughs> it's like, right. Um, and that, so there's, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, in this podcast, we're working at the intersection of food and faith. So we talk about like that intersection. And what I, what I hear saying is whenever you layer these intersections, you layer these, whether it's different disciplines or different lenses about the same community, the same, you know, set of needs and gifts that we, we hear something different but also hear something that fills out and resonates. And I don't know, I just think that, you know, I think there's, there's obviously beauty and power in digging deeply in a particular discipline. And 
the fact that you are listening deeply in multiple disciplines seems like um, that there's there's something that is really um, inspiring there and and I'm curious about you know it, it piques my interest to be like okay so like what are you hearing and how are those you know how are those those um, affecting and resonating with one another at church you hear from the people um, from a spiritual perspective and from and, and frankly from my own experiences also right so like I'm not when I speak about the church I'm not speaking about something that is outside of myself right uh, my congregation like there's a weariness to life and 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 through church we kind of is is the way we address it we address our we address the weariness of life through church and um through our Christian convictions, it helps us to uh, stay focused, to carry on. It strengthens us. It encourages us. It gives us wisdom in helping us make decisions on so going, you know, left or right. Um, it 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 helps us tune in to when when to celebrate, what's what's celebratory and what's not. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so. And so that that for that for, for me is like the goal is like okay I'm in church and I'm trying to figure out one how to live more faithfully, um, but then two how to live in a way that's far more peaceful. Mm. Um, sociology gets at can, sociology and public policy can in public health for sure can get at the second of that the latter of that which is how to live more peacefully. Um, because in the absence of peace, you have a whole lot of things that are not healthy. Um, and so public health says, well, maybe if we, um, how can we, how can we help people live in the way that is, 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 is most healthy? Um, and so you start looking at policies and a lot of other stuff. And so as a public health person, I'm like, okay, what policies can we do that are, that are going to help people live longest, live most vibrant, live with the least amount of chaos? And then in the spiritual aspect, I'm kind of asking the same questions, but I don't like I don't like being a person of two minds, and so I'm trying I try to like bring them together, mm -hmm. so that um, I'm not you know confusing myself. I'm just I'm looking at the kind of the sweet spot in the middle, so that I can be myself, whether I'm in the public health space or I'm in the church space. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be I don't want to wear like all these different hats and like confuse myself. Yeah, I just want to be one person. Yeah. And so I want to I want to jump off that a little bit and test 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 the theory here. So we're talking about deep listening. Um, and like I said, if, if folks want to hear that, please go back and listen to the other the other pods. Um, and we hear you talking about that a lot. Um, and I want and, and talking about looking at things from sort of an intersectional point of view and, and working towards creating kind of a cohesive understanding of, of the issues. And I'm wondering, I just want to ask you, is that what is happening with our conversations around race during COVID? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm floating a theory here. Um, I mean, of course, we have we have the killing of George Floyd. We have the murder of Breonna Taylor. Certainly there are other stories, but those are the two that seem to be most in our national consciousness. And it seems like from where I sit, and I'm just speaking for myself, that there is something different about this conversation, that this seems to have a little more traction. But, I, but I'm wondering if that's true from where you sit and if it's because we're actually approaching these conversations from a, from a variety of, of different places. That's a good question. 
That's a good question. I I think <clears throat> I definitely think it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a I think it's the beginning of a good of a good process. So you think there's a there there that these conversations are are different in some way than yeah yeah the conversation is the conversation is different the conversation is different what's yet to be what's yet to be um seen is whether the pro whether the different conversation is going to uh uh show itself in real in real change real real policies things that matter material ways or is it going to be simply gestures And so the things that we've seen so far are fairly, it's, it's gestures for the most part. Um, so I'm hoping that it moves beyond the gestures into real into real things. I was just reading or listening yesterday that um, Boston has now declared racism a public health uh, crisis. I'm not sure which word they use and it. Yeah. I think that's a gesture, but could become policy. And I think this, this question, right, about how do we, how do gestures move into policies is again at this these intersections where it's like well what do you what do you have to do with that as a pastor like why does that matter as a pastor and i would think you would say it matters exponentially it matters a lot because you know you we are we are all leading groups of people who are voters and who are consumers and who are potentially change agents. Um, I don't know if I really have a question, but I'm just kind of musing out loud that this feels like another pointing to how we need to be be listening in a multi-layered and faceted kind of way to be able to move beyond gesture to actual systemic change. Yeah, and, 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 and I will say gestures matter. Um, you know, as when someone, if someone comes into a, um, a building and I shake their hand and I say, if it's, if it's their birthday month or something, and I, if someone comes to the church and it will say, hey, we're going to sing happy birthday to so-and-so, right? And then the church sings happy birthday to so-and-so. I mean, those are gestures, right? Um, but they matter and that they endow the person with um, some dignity or some importance. And so if we change the military base names and we take away Fort Braggs and you put it to Fort something else where it's not a Confederate leader and you take down the statues in Richmond and the statues in other places and you replace them with people who were kind of more in line with what we say American values are and life, liberty and pursuit of happiness and so forth, then those things when you see that statue, you no longer, you know, you, when you see a statue like that, you may be in, in uh, you may be inspired. You certainly don't have to cringe anymore. If you're, if you're a person of color, you don't have to cringe when you go downtown Richmond and you see this whole block devoted to um, these Confederate leaders. <clears throat> and so, and so gestures matter, but what we, but we're hoping for something that is like, something that's far more greater yeah. Um, and what that greater is, is I think is what the, what the debate needs to be. Hmm. What, what is what is that something greater? And so we talk about, in food system, we talk about food apartheid. In Baltimore, we talk about, we say food apartheid. And the response to apartheid is, is integration. And so for a lot of our urban sites, we're so, the, the, the urban cities are so segregated. 
Um, and when I, when I speak of segregation, I'm not just talking about where people live, I'm talking about resources of segregation. Like there's certain parts of town where the resources just do not come. And then um, other parts of town where they have all the resources. And so we would, we would like not just integrate people, which is, it's okay people integrate, but we really want to integrate the resources. Right. And how does that, how does that happen? Um, I am, I am not an economist, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy to learn something here, but, you know, but it seems like as long as we lean into, you know, as long as we lean into a capitalist system where it says, you know, that those, those who are in charge of our food system are able to make decisions about where they send their food, um, they will continue to make decisions. They, they will continue to make the decisions that bear the most profit. They will, and which means they'll continue to make the decisions that they're making right now that has created these kinds of things. So how do we, so how does that happen? And I know that's a huge question, like asking you to solve the problems of the world, but, but it seems like there is there, there has to be some responsibility other than well, we just hope the market will sort it out. Yeah, well, well that's why there's supposed to be um, governments there, right? And governments are supposed to issue business licenses and governments are supposed to make sure that um, everybody gets the things that they need and not just, um, you know, you pile up in the, in, the, in the best interest of the market sorting itself out. Because we've seen over and over and over again, the market never sorts itself out. The market always just wants to get stronger and bigger, um, which is why we have uh, we have antitrust laws and we have all these other things to say, okay, you know, we, we don't just let the market run amok. And what does the church have to do with that? Well, the church has to be, the church has to be, has to be an advocate. The church has to be an advocate. It, it would be great if the church was, was leader. And so, you know, in, in the church, um, you know, if you, if you read the if you read the Hebrew Bible, and I was going back to scripture, right? If you read the Hebrew Bible, then you see that um, the people of God were influential on every aspect of life. If it dealt with life, then God has something to say about it. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that God didn't have anything to say about was something that didn't um, deal with life. And so there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no. There's no space mm -hmm. that God didn't have anything to say about, right? And so and so the church has to have something to say. And so, you know, we're, we're talking about neighborhood design. We're talking about um, where businesses are allowed to set up. We're talking about um, where roads come in and how schools are set up. The church has to have something to say about that. Mm -hmm. If the church doesn't have anything to say about that, then, um, then, then the secular space will, will get the first and last word, mm -hmm. which is pretty much what, what, what has happened. So what are you hearing that God is saying for, I mean, let's just get to you, like focus it on your neighborhood or your, you know, the, the system that you have your eye on. What are you hearing? Or maybe even more importantly, what are the questions that you're asking that others of us in other communities and churches and systems could be asking, could be praying on, could be li listening more specifically? I think God is asking us, what God is always asking us to do, which is be humble, um, and to, you know, on the day of Pentecost, of course, people people hear people heard the the wondrous works of God in the language that was um, their own, and then after they heard this these wondrous works of God, um, 
they joined this church. And as they joined this church, they became increasingly generous. And people, people distributed um, the extra that they had so that those people who lacked would have enough. And so I think um, certainly what, what I heard God say to me um, was to not, not focus so much on um, getting as much as I can get and being as wealthy as I could be, but to take my talents, which are God-given, take my blessings, which are God-given, take, um, you know, my gifts and so forth and, 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 and be a blessing to, to in a space where it's needed. Um, and so to the, to those who are not suffering, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking God is saying share mm -hmm. for those who are not suffering. God is saying share, share, share your privilege, share your blessings, share your education, share your assets, share your wealth. All right. Don't just accumulate. Um, into 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 those uh, who are suffering, I feel like God is saying, "Share your pain." Mm. Um, for too long, I feel like the people who suffer are are being asked to suffer in silence. Mm -hmm. They're being asked to suffer and share their suffering only amongst those who also suffer. Mm -hmm. um, but I think God is is asking the people who who suffer to share their suffering out loud in public, so that everyone can see it. Mm. Reverend, that is a word. <laughs> um, and I, I, I hear that as in my context, as we start to say, hey, can we listen to the suffering of others? They're like, no, we, we don't want to hear it. Um, and this idea of please only share your suffering with others who are suffering. Um, I think that 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 language crystallizes it for me in a way that I I think I sensed, but couldn't couldn't articulate. That's that's a really powerful way of putting it. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote this I wrote this piece about four years ago. I think it was. Um, I know why the cage bird stopped singing. Is in the it was written in the as a Baltimore Sun op-ed. Baltimore Sun um, published it. Um, but essentially, it was talking about how um, the cage bird has been trying to get the attention of people who are not of those who are not caged. And um, and those who are not caged keep saying, just 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 be quiet and sing over there. Mm. Like I don't, you know, stop. Don't bring us. We got other things to worry about. Mm -hmm. You know, I got wealth to build. I can't. I don't have time to hear about this. You know, your struggles. If you if you if you want to uh, you want us to hear you, then come build some wealth with us, and then maybe we'll hear you a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but they're but they're caged. I mean, if you come to, well, you've been to, you've been, Sam, you've been to, you've been to, uh, I've been to your church. <laughs> you've been to my church. You've been to my church. And so if you sit at, if you, if you sit at my church, there's no crosswalks. So, so my church is at, it's at an intersection mm -hmm. of one of the, it's one of the busiest streets on the west side of Baltimore, Pennsylvania Avenue. It's a business corridor. It connects, um, uh, Martin Luther King Park, uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard, um, up through the north side, through the northwest side of the city. It's, it's a busy street. There's no crosswalks on that street. Mm. There's no crosswalk signs on that street. Mm. Right? You're just walking. Um, the sidewalk is all is all broken up. There's no bike lane. There's no uh, 
you know, it, it just, you're just, you're just out there on your own. Mm-hmm. If you go downtown, every street has a crosswalk. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a cross, you know, there's a little person that lights up yeah. or uh, uh, lights up white when it's time to go, lights up red when it's time to stop. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's safe. And, and you come to Sandtown where our church is, there's, so, there's a, there's a, there's a ton of car accidents mm-hmm. every day. There's a, someone is getting to a, to a car accident at the intersection. Um, and it rivals, you know, the traffic there is high, but it's not as much traffic as downtown, obviously, but the rate of accident rivals the downtown area hmm. in part, because there's no, like the, the traffic control is not, is not, is inadequate. There's no infrastructure. There's no structure. Right. Yeah. There's no structure. Right. And so, and we have like 50 some liquor stores in Sandtown, like 50 some, the, the liquor store density there is, 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 is higher than the liquor store density in the bar district. So we're talking about residents to liquor stores. Right. It's, 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 it's ridiculous, right? And so who signed off on the, all these liquor stores? Right. Who said, yes, you can have another liquor store in this neighborhood yeah. here? Um, of course, they've been there for like 50, 60 years now once, they, once the liquor board first opened up. But these are decisions. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. Not, it's not like it just dropped out of the sky and it just happened, right? right? Like these are conscious decisions that people have made over time. And conscious decisions that benefited somebody or somebody. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah and oppressed other buddies. Yes, yes. And the argument Body. to validate it is usually a economic argument. Yeah, well, you know, we're going to, it's going to, it's going to produce jobs. It's going to uh, uh, bring tax revenue into the city. So it's good. So as long as it makes a little bit of money for a little bit of people, it's, it's good. Right. Hmm. And that is, it's not good just because it brings a little bit of money to a little bit of people. That doesn't make it good. Well, you have brought this conversation full circle because we hear you exegeting your place. Like, hey, pay attention to the text, the crosswalks, the liquor stores, the ratios, the stuff that people just walking past your church wouldn't necessarily think about. But as somebody who lives in place, um, thinking very carefully about your place and the ramifications of what that means. I just, I, if this was a church service, you'd be getting amens for me. So I, I just, to hear you exegete your place um, is just, again, I mean, that's, you, you continue to inspire in that work. So thank you very much for that. Oh, thank you. We always end these um, interviews with this question about hope. And I think you have laid out so beautifully how hope is, is not, um, it's not just the thing that you kind of say, oh, well, there's, there's a hope. <laughs> but true hope is something that is deeper and it, it is rooted in, in God. It is rooted in action. It is rooted in advocacy together. Um, and I think it's rooted in our faith that there is a possibility of a world that is different than the world that we are currently living in, in a world where the that dignity that people get when they come to your farm, that that is, that is, that is assumed and that maybe we could have, you know, less trauma in the first place. Um, so I'm that curious. Would be, that'd be the hope. Yeah, that'd be the hope. So. <laughs> What gives you hope? Um, what gets you up in the morning to keep working for for that hope? Well, I mean, theologically, you would say, well, well God is still present. Um, the breath of life is still in me, and I still and I see the breath of life in others, and so um, the breath of life always moves. Right, the first thing we hear about, the first thing we learn about the Holy Spirit is that it is it's moving over the waters of the deep, and so. 
as long as the spirit is in you, then you're you're inclined to move. Um, and so I wake up in the morning uh, inclined to move because uh, the presence of God is there. But the thing that gives me hope that I see um, is that increasingly people are beginning to listen. And so the walls are the walls are starting to kind of come down a little bit. Um, and that's 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 very refreshing. I mean, what, where else do you get a chance to come onto a podcast like this and talk about um, these sorts of issues and have it be received? and then broadcast out into the wider world. I mean, that means that people are listening, right? It's not my podcast, it's yours. Um, and so Is people it, are listening. We're still surprised that people listen too, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we are glad to be listening with you. With yeah. Them. Okay, yeah. But, th but those th things like that, you know, like the fact that people are, people are beginning to listen gives gives us a little bit of hope and every time someone listens then it then then um usually they move a little teeny bit and it, it moves the it moves the needle forward just a little bit it's sad that it takes something like george floyd's death to kind of open up the ears and so you know um it takes a lot of tragedy to kind of get get people to open up so colin, colin kaepernick colin kaepernick was kneeling and everyone thought it was a disgrace right. to uh, all things patriotic for him to, to do that. And then it took the protest that followed the death of, of George Floyd for people to say, okay, well, you can protest any way you want as long as you don't burn down the buildings. And so uh, Colin wasn't burning any buildings. And so we should have embraced his protest because maybe he had a point. Mm. Um, but that's the hope, right? Like, okay, well, now, goodness, well, they open up, they open up a little bit. So now, as, as much as much as people open up, then the more I can speak and fill mm -hmm. that and fill that void. Mm -hmm. And so that's the hope, really, that more people are listening. Mm. Mm. Well, okay. Reverend Daryl, um, thank you so much um, for coming on and for being a voice um, in all the ways that you are, and as such a voice for intersectionality. Um, and we hope that our guests are as fascinated as Anna and I are uh, as, as to your journey and the contributions that, that, that you are making. And so we, we wish you well, especially with your PhD in the middle of COVID, trying to navigate all of that. Um, be sure of our prayers for you as you try to, as, as you you. Try to bring that to a conclusion. Um, but we really wanted to say thank you so much for coming on and for sharing a little bit with us. Um, it, uh, it, and and also, Anna, I do have to say this. It does feel a little bit like Maryland week. We got another Marylander on here. So I'm feeling really good about that. So um, I need to Darryl, work, on, for... work on my Western Massachusetts connections, <laughs> apparently. So <laughs> Daryl, for, for Maryland-centric Maryland pod in a way that, you know, there's good stuff going on in Maryland. I support it, but... <laughs> so Daryl, thank you so much for coming on the pod with us. We really do appreciate it. We really do. All right, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.